unplanned but the perfect flow of thought from our congregational prayer and the reminder that life is hard. It hurts while we're here. There is pain. But we believe in God the Father. Amen? Amen. Hey, children, uh, ages three through first grade, now is your time. If you are interested in going back to children's worship, you can do that as long as it's okay with your parents. Uh, we don't want to uh, create a problem there. Uh, the rest of us, if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, and we'll begin reading in verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you and I, I'm just mindful of the times in this service in which we've come to you with our hands lifted up, empty, but in faith that you will provide all that we need. And now, oh God, we need for you to work in the lives of our children. We thank you for children's worship and the opportunity for our kids to gather together and be taught how to abandon themselves to you. Father, grant that they may give their lives fully over to you, trusting in Jesus. And for us, the rest of the congregation, oh God, we have our hands lifted asking you to give us what we need from, your, from this passage of Scripture, from your word. Spirit of God, fall upon us. Fill our hearts with the comfort that is beyond imagination. Convict us, O God, in those areas where we need to be certain of our faith or we, we need to turn from our sin. Guide us, O God, in the way that we should live. And above all, lift up our hearts to praise and glorify you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Community is important, right? It's, it's, a, it's a, a vital part of our lives. And, and you begin to see this as you look at uh, Im immigration trends. You know how there are different groups of people that would immigrate from one nation and would end up in the same location, right? You think of, uh, the, I start with the Irish, for obvious reasons. Um, the Irish would tend to come over and they would gravitate and, and many would uh, find themselves in Boston. Now there's some pragmatic reasons for that. Most of them were very, very poor and once they got to Boston, they didn't have any money to keep going farther west and so they stayed in that port where they, they came in, but they created a, a community of, of people with a similar language and, and historical experience. Um, you have the, the Swedes, again, with our family and Robin's uh, family that, that came in, and, and they went a little bit farther west in the upper Midwest. They began to uh, find that that's where the, the Swedish communities would be very strong, and um, a little bit into Colorado, which is where Robin came from. But 
Um, but then and we're all aware, you know, of the, the German influence in Pennsylvania, right? And this isn't the only place, but there was, there was strong Germanic uh, roots. And, and what would happen is people would, would, would move here, and, and when you move here, you want to be around people with a shared history, a shared language, a shared culture, and maybe even a shared religion. Because these are people like you, and you feel that, that, that bond, and so that, that pull of the community is strong. In the 1980s, uh, the government of South Africa began to enforce different segregation laws, and they were forcing uh, the different races into different places, and they started the townships, and there was one township, uh, Kailicha, um, which is one of the largest, actually they call it one of the largest slums in, in the world. Um, and uh, I think we've got some pictures. And this first one is to show you the types of houses that folks would, would live in. But if you also look how far back that goes. Um, and the next picture will take it even farther to get an even bigger idea of just, just how vast. And this is uh, some of the nicer areas within that uh, community. And when we were in South Africa this last time, it, it struck me, one of the things that, that I walked away from, we learned a little bit more about the townships. We went to uh, District, is it 6 or District 6, uh, which is just a section of downtown Cape Town where, uh, in particular, uh, what they would speak of as, as coloreds, uh, which would be anyone who isn't uh, just a, a black African or, or, or white European would be considered a, a, a colored. And they, they moved them all out, forcibly out of that area and, and bulldozed many of their homes. And, and many were sent into townships like this. And, and so we began to see, and, and as we as Americans would, would think about that and think, so as people leave um, the, the township and they find a job maybe in the city and maybe it becomes a good paying job and they begin to do well, what would we assume would be the first thing they'd want to do? Right? Suburbs, baby, right? <laughs> That's what we're thinking is I'm, I'm leaving that behind. But they don't. And we began to think, well, why, why would you not do that? And then it's like, oh, because I'm leaving my family. Because I'm leaving my friends. Because I'd be leaving my church. 75% of the population in the township is Christian. I'd be leaving my community. And I need my community. And so they stay, even in what we would consider very difficult uh, situations where, where crime is high. Uh, they may have to walk, uh, you know, uh, 200 meters or so uh, to, to go to get uh, water. For, for cooking or washing. Um, there, there, there probably isn't indoor plumbing. Um, and yet, uh, the, and I, I mentioned the crime and uh, the, the other pressures that are there. Um, I, I'm not sure that there's much AC. It was cool to see that uh, in Belize, they've got a little bit of AC in some of the houses now, and that's the uh, affluence that's, that's rising. But they don't have that there. So all that's what, what they've got. Why would they not leave that? And the reason is the community is so strong. It's so important. Well, I think it helps us to look at things like this to begin to understand what the recipients of the letter to the, of, of Hebrews were living in. These were individuals who grew up in the Old Covenant, and that is under the old administration of the Covenant of Grace. And if we remember the Old Covenant and think about Israel, think about Judah, and what we see from that is it, it's, it's confusing. We, we, we see, sometimes we'll talk about Israel as a nation, and that's primarily what comes to our mind, but we have to remember that it was also a church. And the reality is it was first a church 
that was also a nation. Now imagine what that would be like to where you've got a church identity, but your church is also the governmental structure for the entire country in which you live. And some of us are going, yeah, that's what we're working for, baby. That's, that's what we're going for. And, and, and I'm not saying that's, that's bad, but just recognizing the pressure that that was so that the church, the religious element of their life was their community. And as they put their faith in Christ, they found themselves isolated from that community. Remember the story in, in the book of John of the man who's born blind. And what did the religious leaders do to his parents? They threatened to throw them out of the church because their son had been healed by the Messiah. Because they were seeing faith in this Messiah and they were losing their community. And they were always isolated from Rome, which, which led the place there. And, and we think about uh, the persecution that we see in the book of Acts and how often the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, and then the, the uh, uh, political leaders in Israel were then persecuting the church. And here they find themselves in this spot to where their faith is causing them not just to, to leave their, their, their religious background, but they're losing their whole community. And the author of Hebrews is wrapping up his, his book and wanting to challenge them to keep moving forward following Jesus. And to do that, he has to address the issue of community. And to address it, he says, you need to live in a new covenant community. Not in the old covenant community, but live in the new covenant community. And to do that, he, he lays out three virtues, three characteristics of the new covenant community that they can live in. And for us, they remind us of how we are to live in that community. How do we do that? To live in a new covenant community, first of all, we will offer worship through Jesus. Look at verses 15 and 16. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Worship was central to the Jewish community. Right? And, and we, we look at the Old Testament and we recognize that. That was always central. That's why in their capital, they set up, first of all, the tabernacle, and then they built the temple under Solomon so that the central place of worship was, was connected to the central place of, of their entire culture, that worship was a central part. Well, it's a central part to the New Covenant community as well. Right? Worship is, is the hallmark of, of what we do together. It is, it is our primary activity together as a community. It is our worship. And notice verse 15, there are two words that, that are there that uh, start out the whole thing. He says, through him, through him. That's what's distinct about new covenant worship. It's always through Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus, Jesus who, remo who removes the veil and escorts us into the throne room of God the Father. It's Jesus who removes the stain of our sin and provides the righteousness that is necessary for us to enter into that throne room. And it is Jesus who stands worthy to receive our absolute surrender. The worship that we offer is through Jesus. And worship involves sacrifice. You notice two times he talks about that. He talks about the sacrifice of praise and he talks about with such sacrifices God is pleased. The Jews would understand that. Jewish Christians would understand. Worship involves sacrifice. There's got to be some level of sacrifice. And so let's look at the two sacrifices that we are 
encouraged to bring to our God. And the first is to bring a sacrifice of praise. Verse 15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. To continually bring a sacrifice of praise. This was fun this week. Um, you, you probably noticed I like word studies. Um, but looking up the word praise. And I was, I was uh, uh, surprised to learn that the root of the word praise is the word story. Story as a way of praising God. And so I, I, I looked up the use of the word and I saw one passage in particular, Luke chapter 18 and verse 41 through 43 where, where this word is used. And I think it really illustrates this concept. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And you hear the desperation and hope in those words, right? And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. When all the people saw it, they told the story. And that praises God, doesn't it? I'm going to tell the story. Seems like a song. Shall you break into song, Galen? I love to tell the story, right? I do of Jesus and his love. I love to tell that story. Why? Because that's how I praise him. By telling that great story. Um, they told the story of his love. They told the story of his power, of how he, he brought him sight. They told the story of his mercy. This man had nothing by which he might call upon God that God should give it to him. And they told the story of God's kindness. He didn't have to do it, but he did. And what a great story it is. I've been in the hospital a bit this last week, and I was uh, walking out, and I saw this sign um, I don't know if Beth is here. I, I don't see her, but anyone who works at the hospital maybe has seen these. Thank your nurse here, right? It's a place where you can you can thank for the for the great job that they're doing. And I think that's just a, we could just stop right there, right? Some of you are nurses, and you're saying, "Yeah, yeah, that's what we ought to do." Is thank your nurse here? But it says, "Share your story." See, we even understand it in our culture that the way that we begin to praise the nurse for the work they've done is how. By telling the story of what they did for us. To tell the story. What story of God do you have today? Often we'll tell the story along with John Newton, that pastor who had previously been a, a slave trader and a very immoral man who came to meet Jesus Christ as his Savior so he wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. He's telling the story of the grace of God, and God is praised by that story. Maybe you found peace in the midst of an incredibly troubling situation that everything was in turmoil, as we read about in Psalm 46 in our call to worship. Though the earth should fall away, yet we found in the midst of that that God was there with us faithful. 
And He brought to us a sense of peace as we face the difficult time, as we face the, the difficult diagnosis from the doctor. And we hear those hard words. And yet God remains faithful. And He tells us, I am still here. And we tell that story. Maybe it's a time in which we, we see loved ones going through difficult times. We see hardship all around us. And yet, God reminds us that He is faithful. And we tell that story. Maybe there's some astounding deliverance that He's brought in your life. Tell the story with thanksgiving. And that's how we praise Him. Speak your story. Speak it. Don't just think it. Speak it. He gave us lips that we might speak. And we're to speak that story. And we're to speak that story with thanksgiving to our God. As the passage itself says in verse 15. Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Bring a sacrifice of praise, but also bring a sacrifice of love, verse 16. And do not neglect to do good and sharing, doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Doing good and sharing, isn't that just ways in which we love folks? It is. And as I read doing good, I'm quite confident that the people who receive this letter would immediately be thinking and saying, well, what, what good does He want us to do? <laughs> Micah 6, 8. Well, He's shown you. Oh man, what is good? And what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That is to say, to do good is to do justice, to do that which is fair and honest. That's justice, is it not? It's what is fair and honest, and to be sure that we do that in all that we do. To love kindness, and notice it's interesting, do justice, but kindness, kindness, you need to love it. To rejoice in kindness. Does it thrill your soul when people are just kind? When they're just extra patient and they take the time and they go above and beyond to treat someone with the respect that is due them as a child of God? To love kindness and to walk. Oh, a story of kindness. Robin told uh, the story at recess this last week that it was kindergartner's first uh, first week of school, and the challenge it is to be a kindergartner, and suddenly you're in school, and how hard it is, and that there was one taller child, so guessing maybe second grader, maybe third grader, that found a couple little ones that were, were kind of crying, and she'd go up and hug them and tell them it'll be okay, and to comfort them. Like it all. <laughs> Emotion, I'm going to be like Ben here. Um, because that's just beautiful, isn't it? At that little age, they know, oh, I'm going to love you, and that will make it better. And it does, right? It does. Amen. And to see that kind of kindness, and to rejoice in that, and then to walk with our God. Because that's why we do good and love kindness, right? Because we're walking with our God. Do good this is a part of sacrificing our love. And then share. Do not neglect doing good and sharing. Sharing is the word koinonia, the, the Greek word, which means it's translated as fellowship. It's what we have together. Our Christian love. 
is what we have together. We have a lot of things that are different among us, right? We have a lot of different backgrounds. We have a lot of uh, different heritage. Um, we have different even convictions, uh, even different elements of the faith that we believe. We may unite around the Nicene Creed, and then we, we may spin off in a thousand different directions after that. But we have that together, and that common love in Jesus Christ. Let that be a rallying point for us to share together in that. Offer worship through Jesus. And the second step is to let's follow our leaders. He says in verse uh, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Obey your leaders. Um, and, and before I talk about that, I, I want to just go back to and submit to them. Uh, my ideas about submission have, have grown over the years, and, and lately there's just been a, uh, an understanding that has helped me a lot. Uh, as I think of the, the word submit means to place yourself under. And oftentimes we think about that as, as we place ourselves under the value, under the authority of the other person. And I'm beginning to think of it more like a column is placed under the roof. And it supports the roof. And think about that in your relationship with the elders and with the deacons, with your leaders, that you place yourself under them and in so doing you give them the strength that they need to be effective that you support them. Another person said, well, isn't it just like the three men who held up Moses' arms as he was praying during the battle, that they were submitting to him, they were supporting him, they were strengthening him. And I think that helps me understand what the concept of submission is. But he says to obey your leaders. And it's interesting the word is there because it's actually a passive imperative. And you're probably going, oh, dang, that's wild. It is, Right? It's, it's a passive command. Now think about that for a moment. You're commanding someone to be passive. It's like saying, be tall, right? It's like, uh, okay, um, you know, uh, next to my granddaughters I am, so I'll take that, right? <laughs> Outside of that, I'm, I'm maybe not. But that's kind of the command. And so what he's saying is to be led. That's what the idea of, of obeying in a passive sense, it's not me actively going out and making sure I'm going to do everything that they tell me, but I'm going to be led by them. I'm going to follow them. And as he goes on, he begins to describe that pretty well, I think, as he, he talks about that, let them do this with joy and not with grief, or this would be unprofitable for you. So, so you're, you're letting them lead, which means there's no place in the church for, for anarchy. In the New Covenant community, there's no place for anarchy. Um, there's a, a, a phrase that's used in the book of Judges a couple different times, and it's actually the very last verse in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. And it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. That is, there was no leader. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is right after the story of the man, the, 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 I believe he's a priest, who has a concubine. First of all, that's problematic, Right? And then he has this concubine and he gives her over to this group of men who then rape her and kill her. And he then takes her and, and divides her body into parts and sends her parts to all the different uh, tribes of Israel. Is this pretty depraved? This is just gross, awful stuff. Because there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
You see, so when he's saying obey your leaders, he's saying we're, we're, we're going to avoid anarchy. We're not going to have that to be a part of, of what we're seeking to live in our lives. But there's also an element in which he's saying that there's also no need for fear. When we first got Grancis, our dog, Michael's dog, who's our dog, um, just a delightful dog. She's, she's um, the, the vet said probably a combination of pit bull and beagle. She's funny looking. <laughs> she got these little short beagle-like legs and this, this face that looks all pit bully. And, and, and she's got such a gentle disposition, but we know that she was abused. She's a rescue. And, and I remember the first time I thought, oh, isn't it cool? I mean, go for a bike ride with your dog, run along. Isn't that going to be great? And so we did, and we went along, and we came to a storm grate, and she stopped, and I went over the front of my Bam! Lost it all. Because she's terrified of storm grates for some reason through the years that we've been with her. It was neat this morning as I was walking her and she stopped and went up and peeked into the storm grate because she's learned she doesn't have to be afraid. And it's a beautiful thing. Every now and then she's triggered, but for the most part, well, that's, that's true for us as well, that we don't have to be afraid when we have good leadership because sometimes we've been hurt by leaders, right? Sometimes church leaders hurt people. This is, this is our experience, particularly in this day and age. And so therefore, there's an element in which, as we're looking at this section, I want to say to the leaders, pay attention. Because this instructs us as to how to lead and what we're supposed to do, that we need to be worthy of leading. And there are two reasons to follow. Number one is that the leaders care for your soul. It says that he keeps watch. For they keep watch over your souls. Keep watch. A word that literally means they're not sleeping. It's not what I thought it would be, which is uh, episkopos, which is to, to uh, oversee. It's not the word that's used here. It literally is not sleeping. For they're not sleeping concerning your souls. Anybody else immediately think of Psalm 121? Yep. Psalm 121, verse 3. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. That they're not sleeping. They're aware. They're alert. They're involved. And it's not about control ever. It's never about control. That's not what leadership is. We're never called upon to control another human being. We're called upon to control ourselves, but to serve other people and to care for them with protection. A leader has, uh, one of the things I've always said is when a, when a leader has to assert his authority, he's lost it, right? If I've got to say, this is my authority, I have none. It's all gone. But instead, the leader seeks to protect recognizing that there are errors that can harm the people of God, right? And so his job is to warn and to point out the dangers that are there. The leader also will recognize that temptations are, are present, and each of us has different temptations. And to know the flock and to know the temptations that are there for each individual and to help them so that they're able to stand against that, but also for provision. That the leader's job is to provide food, water, rest, refreshment to be sure that the, the flock has what it needs. This is what we're called upon. The second reason to follow the leader is 
that we want to benefit. We want to benefit. He says, for this would be uh, unprofitable for you to fight against them. And that's the idea of, of not fighting against the leadership. Some of you are familiar with Acts chapter 17, and I believe it's verse 11. Paul is in Berea. And we read the words, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And in, in Christian culture, we'll talk a lot of times about being Berean Christians. And usually what we mean by that is that we're Christians who are searching the Scripture to see that the things are so, right? And we talk about that. But notice that's not the first thing that Luke says is noble about them. The first thing that he says is that they received the word with great eagerness. The faith was the first part of the nobleness. They weren't fighting against Paul to prove him wrong, but they were receiving it and then double-checking, right? Is this in the Scripture and finding it to be so? This is the attitude that the author of Hebrews is trying to get at, to ask myself, can I grow in my faith? I'm, I'm guessing, likely, there's no one here who says, no, actually, I've topped out, <laughs> right? I've maxed out. I, I, I've, I've reached the, the pinnacle of faith, right? Because if that person was here, their name would be Enoch, and they would have gone home with God yesterday, right? So we, we, we aren't there. We can all grow. And what if God has actually put leaders in our lives who can help us do that? Does that sound like something he'd do? And so I can trust them. And so I can know that it's beneficial to me. So the two steps, first of all, if, in building this, this uh, living in a new covenant community, first of all, we worship through Jesus. Secondly, we follow our leaders. And finally, we pray for one another. I, I was thinking about adjusting our um, logo and putting a motto on it. What do you think? See if that'll come up. Watch, I forgot to put the slide in. Hmm? Got any problem with that? Amen. Which is number two, that it's not just our motto, it's also our hallmark, right? What if that's who we begin to be, to pray for one another, and what if, People in the community say, Providence, oh yeah, that's that church that'll pray for us. I meet people from that church, like Daryl, and you know what he does with me? He prays. Do you ever look out over the congregation and you see different people in different spots? Their heads are bowed and they're praying. I can't tell you what that does to me as a pastor and the joy that that gives me and the, the, the power that is in that reality. We have a women's prayer partner ministry right? The prayer partner ministry. And, and these women are going to be praying for each other every day throughout the next year and getting together once a month and praying together for each other. What a great idea, right? <clears throat> Men. Enough said, right? If anybody wants to organize that, um, jump on it. Because I think, well, maybe... Do men need prayer too? Yeah, the ladies are saying, by two you mean twice as much? Yes, yes, yes. 
Um, we, we need to be praying for each other as well. Um, the author, who is their leader, requests prayer for two areas. These provide a guideline for us to begin to pray for one another. Pray, first of all, that we live honorable lives. Verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. A good conscience, which is a sense of moral integrity. And that is to say, the reality that I need to be the same person wherever I am. The same person in my home, the same person in a board meeting, the same person uh, in leading public worship, that this is who I am, and that's moral integrity. And we need to pray for that for one another, right? What is the number one complaint that non-Christians have about the church? It's full of hypocrites, which is a lack of moral integrity. So we need to pray for one another to have that sense of moral integrity. I love the, the prayer in Psalm 41. We've been praying this a lot together, uh, Robin and I, in the last uh, month or two. In verse 12, he says, As for me, you, that is God, uphold me in my integrity, and you set me in your presence forever. It is God who upholds us in our integrity. Pray this for one another. the good conscience, and secondly, to conduct ourselves honorably. And that literally means to, to will the good. To will the good. Oh, that we would each, when faced with a decision of what to do, we would choose that which is good. Oh, and what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with my God. To choose the good consistently. The second thing he he says the guideline we have is to pray for restored relationships. Verse 19. And I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Here, this author is separated by distance from this congregation and he wants restoration. But there are other things that break our relationships as well. There are broken relationships. Each of us have faced that at different times. And to plead with God to restore those relationships, to go to him and to say, Lord, the gospel's all about restoration, is it not? Will you not bring restoration? Rich Mullins has a song about a broken relationship in his life. I think it's with a woman that was his fiancée at one point. And the title is, We're Not As Strong As We Think We Are. What a perfect song about our broken relationships and that recognition that, that I want to be sure that I'm a person, first of all, who isn't giving offense. I don't want to be a cause of offending someone, and so I need to work hard to make that a reality. But secondly, I must be equally diligent to be sure that I'm a person who doesn't take offense. To ask God to build that in each of our lives and in that way to bring restoration. Because the gospel is all about restoration, which is why Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 
we can experience pseudo-communities. And these are groups of people that it, it looks like we've got something in common. I think the first probably 15, 20 years of the Presbyterian Church in America, a lot of what we had was a pseudo-community within our denomination. And that is primarily what had brought the PCA together was the opposition to the PCUS. Okay? So particularly in the beginning, um, and, and maybe it's more like 10, but uh, up until the RPCES came in, we began to have more of a positive connection. But early on, it was just a group of churches that had left the PCUS. Liberalism had come in. They recognized that. And so they wanted to leave it. And so they left and they built this around their commitment to against a common enemy, right? And sometimes that can look like a community, can't it? We see it in churches, churches that are known for what they're against and for the people that they're against, churches that we may even have a, a, a list of approved books and disapproved books, and, and we, we, we gather together, you know, and huddle together because they're all bad out there, right? I'm just glad we never see anything like that in politics. <laughs> but isn't that how so often political parties really build their support is that the other guys are evil? destroying our nation and taking the souls of our children, right? When in reality, there are people who have different ideas. I may disagree with those ideas diligently, but, but that's all they are. They don't intend evil. They believe that their ideas will accomplish something good. So they're not bad, they're just wrong. And by them, I mean anybody who disagrees with me, right? To, to recognize our tendency to make enemies out of others, and that's a pseudo-community. It's not a real community, because what's the root of community? It's unity. It's that we're together around what we hold true, under, around what we share together as a positive good. The author gives three positive goods that are to build our community. He tells us to live in a new covenant community by worshiping through Jesus, by following our leaders, and by praying for one another. I pray that God will help Providence Presbyterian Church and all of you who are here, some are not uh, always a part of this congregation, and that's fine but that he will help us to build and to live in a new covenant community. Let's pray. Father, there are so many ideas in this passage. I know my heart was torn. A desire to preach several sermons on this, and yet in your providence you've led us to consider it all in one. But Father, we have a hundred or so minds that are here today I pray that you will apply to each of us ways in which we can live in that new covenant community. I pray that you will build this church. I ask, oh God, that you will help us more and more to be a church that prays. And I believe, and I, I pray first off and ask that you would begin with my heart as I commit myself to you to more and more pray. And Father, would you use us then to build a community that all around will see that this is where Jesus is. We ask this in his name. Amen.